The COVID-19 pandemic has been serious, to say the least, but solvable. Say those two things at the same time. It has been serious and solvable. Serious, what I mean by that is, is simply this, that there has been uh, quite a bit, to say the least, of, of suffering, suffering physically, economically, and socially. It has been serious, but it has also at the same time been solvable when you consider the fact that the measures that we have been implored to take whether that be hand-washing or personal uh, social distancing and such, all, all those things, it seems to be indicating that that curve is flattening, and perhaps even in the months to come, a, a vaccine may be coming. It is serious. It has been serious, but solvable. So that's good news. That's good news. But I don't think it's any stretch to say that everyone here in this room and anyone listening and everyone across this land has become increasingly aware in recent days that we face a whole nother kind of pandemic, a pandemic that goes a whole lot deeper than anything a simple vaccine, an injection, or something that you could take in the mouth could ever solve, and that is a pandemic of racism. George Floyd's unjust death, his murder, and the unrest in the streets in the days since did not create that pandemic. It revealed it. It revealed it. It showed us that we have been suffering for quite some time from something that we have tried to ignore for a long time and simply can do such no longer. No longer. To which I want to say two things. First, again, that pandemic cannot be ignored. We can simply not afford to ignore it, to pretend it's not there and demean it. And at the same time, we also have to say there is a cure, but it runs a whole lot deeper than most people think. So with that in mind, I would urge you to turn with me to Psalm 87. Psalm 87 is our text for this morning. It is a beautiful, stirring vision that the Lord God Himself presents to us and that we would do oh so well to lay hold of. Psalm 87, hear now the Word of God. On the holy mount stands the city He founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the peoples, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. We pray for just a moment. Lord, we thank You for this vision.
We thank you for its reality. We thank you for its certainty. It is beautiful. The imagery there stirs within us. Uh, There is something there that resonates deeply. And we ask that you would help us to understand it, to hear it, to grasp it, and more than anything, to live out of it. To go forth with the message of Psalm 87. Every one of us to go forth with gladness and, and wonder and anticipation and a willingness to prayerfully labor for it, even all, with all of that. We thank you for the holy anticipation and even, can we say, a holy discontentment that this stirs within. Oh, we ask that you would guide us in these next few minutes as we study this passage. Would you study us, we pray in your name. Amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is oftentimes cited as saying these words, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Let me give you some of the context of those words, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life. Uh, the context in which the history from which those words would have erupted. Uh, Back in the 1930s, as Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party's power and influence and menace was on the rise, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor, was becoming increasingly disturbed and upset by the German church's complacency in the face of unbelievable evil and injustice as poured out upon Jews in the nation of Germany. And in response to that, in time, Bonhoeffer and others felt like they had no choice but to create a new church branching out of the German church, a new church. And over time, over the course of a series of events, the Nazis decided to shut that church down, to declare it illegal, and to persecute any and all who would be involved in it. Bonhoeffer found himself to be a fugitive. He escaped in time and again over the course of a series of events. He found himself after much prayer and reflection in a position where he felt he simply had to agree to participate in a plot to assassinate the Fuhrer, to kill Adolf Hitler, because... Not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act. Here's the question. Has God spoken? Has God acted? The answer is emphatically yes. He has spoken. He has acted. It brings us to our text here this morning, Psalm 87, this vision of a new global city, a future certainty, and a, and a hope that resonates down deep within the heart of every human being because we were made for the vision that the sons of Korah here, the scribes of Psalm 87 put before us. It's something 
that we long for because we were made in the image of the God who's putting this vision here in front of us. Psalm 87. Now, bringing this to the topic and the scourge, the pandemic of racism, if we will hear this, if we can see this, if we can grasp this, if we will just in some poor measure embrace this and live out of it, this is the cure. This is the cure for the disease. This is the balm for the wounds. Right here, Psalm 87, as it captures so much Genesis through Revelation, the biblical themes that we see here that we would do so well to to know and to embrace ourselves. If I can just put it this way, in response to the pandemic of racism, in response to the pandemic of racism, the Lord is promising a new city. He is promising a new city. Now, that's a bold statement to make. How in the world can we back that up? As we look at the psalm and begin to unpack it, we see some startling things here. It's there in your outline if you've got that there with you. These simple three points. First, thinking in terms of the city of God, then the people of God, and the grace of God. Those three things, absolutely critical that we understand all three, all three building in their importance, building in their intensity. So let's look at this, these things in turn. First, the city of God, this new city that He has created, is creating. How, how, here's the question, how does God, how does the Lord view this city? What does He have in mind for it, and how does He see it? Well, it's there in verses 1 to 3 so plainly. On the holy mount stands the city He founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. There's a couple of things that we need to, to get clear here on, and it has to do with Zion. What is Zion? What does the Bible mean when it uses that kind of imagery? Well, it's a twofold thing. One is Zion as a place. And the other is Zion as a people. Zion as as a place is very simple. It's the city of Jerusalem. The city that David conquered, that he took over from some Canaanites, that in time became the capital city, religiously and politically, of the nation of Israel, where the temple was, the mount is what's being spoken of there. And and the language that is used, the, the names of Zion through the Old Testament are, are quite telling, quite telling in terms of how God sees this place and the special attention and affection that He has for this place. The city, I'll give you just a list of these. The city of David, the city of God, God's resting place, His holy hill, the holy city, the holy mountain. Now, these are all Zion as a place. But Zion is also spoken of in the Word as a people as God's covenant people, the promises that He gave, the covenant promises that He made with us, with us, to be our God and to be with us, to bless us that we might be a blessing. Those are the covenant promises that God made to Zion, Zion the people, Zion the church, 
to us. Those are the promises He has made to us, to us still today, to, to, and His purposes for us as a people. To be a city on a hill. Now, that's New Testament language in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's an Old Testament concept. Genesis all the way through Revelation, the, con- the idea of our being a city on a hill, a living demonstration before the watching world of what it is to live in communion and community with one another and the living God, to be responding to His gracious initiative in our lives and let that impact the whole of our lives, to be a living demonstration of what that is before the watching world such that they cannot help but be pulled and drawn by that living demonstration, something that's real and true and beautiful. That's the calling, the purpose the Lord has for Zion, His His people, for us, for us as a church, as the church. So Zion, Zion is a place, Zion is a people, a people with a purpose. The church still today, maybe you can even say, I, I don't want to say especially today because it's just true continually so and constantly so, no more, no less than in any stage. The church, is need, the church needs to be engaged and involved in the issues of the day, not just doing our Sunday morning thing, going home, and then coming back next week. This Sunday morning thing is when we assemble, and then it's the church dispersed Monday through Saturday. The... Uh, The idea is is that we should understand that the gospel speaks and addresses powerfully, transformatively to every issue of our day and of any day. But maybe you could say, well, what issues of our day? Power and money, sex and gender, race and justice. The gospel speaks and speaks powerfully to every one of those issues, showing there to be another way another way, another path. And friends, I fear that, that for starters, we don't even believe that the gospel actually speaks to these issues. We have to begin there, begin there knowing in the depth of our being that indeed it does, indeed it does, So understanding that it it does speak and how it speaks, and then letting it speak to us such that we would be humble enough to listen and bold and loving enough to speak. Don't mix the order of those two things. Humbled by the gospel enough to listen and bold and loving enough to speak to whatever the issue is. That's starting at 10,000 feet. That's point one. I said this is building an intensity, circling, getting more particular and specific in in what we're trying to address here this morning. But, again, as I said a moment ago, the idea here is simply this, that in response to this pandemic of racism, The Lord in His grace is promising this new city. We have to begin with recognizing simply that, simply that. But then that takes us to the next point. And that 
point has to do with the people of God, and that's an attempt to answer this question, and that is as you look into the, into the gates and you look into this city, who do you see there? Who makes up Zion, the people of God, the church? Who do we find there? Well, the text is very plain, and I can only imagine how dumbstruck the first hearers of this song must have been. Verses 4 to 6, among those who, I, who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon, behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush, this one was born there, they say, and of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the people, this one was born there. Who do we find there? Two, two, let me put, come at this from two angles. One, those who know Him, starting with this, those who know Him, and then that being people from all nations. But let's first things first. Those who know Him, those who know Him, that's who you find there in Zion, which immediately you have to say, well, that's, there is a narrowness to that, just, just owning that. As Jesus says, the gate is narrow. The Sermon on the Mount, those are Jesus' words. Not everyone is there in Zion. We have to acknowledge that. It's those who know Him those who, st- who stand in a true relationship with Him. It's not everyone. So there's a sense of an exclusivity here that we have to acknowledge. And at the same time, as even as it is narrow, it is wide. Because anyone who knows Him is there. Anyone. Everyone who knows Him is there. So it's far more inclusive than you may realize because it has nothing to do with doing mighty deeds or carrying out great works. It has to do with something else entirely as to how it is that anyone, that anyone finds themselves to be within the precincts of Zion, included amidst His people. Those who know Him, that's the first thing. Now, how broad does that go? I teased that a second ago. Here you go. People from all nations, from everywhere, from everywhere. Let's, look through the, let's go through the list here, okay? So Rahab, that was another way of referring to Egypt. That's the superpower at the time down to the south. Babylon, that's the superpower in the day out to the east. Philistia. That's a coastal um, culture down to the, the southeast. Tyre, that's a coastal cult culture up to, excuse me, the southwest. Then uh, Philistias to the southwest, Tyre's to the northwest. Cush, Cush, that's south, 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 down below Egypt. It's pretty striking here when you consider that all these peoples, this is basically the at the time, basically a description of the known world in their culture in that time. And the sons of Korah are saying that all of these peoples will be made citizens of Zion, registered and recorded. They're on the list. And beyond even that, they're said to be born there, adopted, embraced made native-born, 
That's in your certificate. That's in your passport. That's in your file. You're not just part of, but of, embraced into Zion. It doesn't matter where you're from. You see, Zion is a multicultural, multiracial city, typified by unity and diversity. Unity and diversity together at the same time. That's, that's, so, who, who do we see? People from all nations, all tribes, all cultures, all races, showing us that this city, this community, is one that is made up, uh, typified by unity and diversity. Now, you ask, well, how, how, how can that, that be? Well, let's trace it back. Let's go as far as we can to the beginning, to Genesis 1 and 2. And there you see the roots of every tribe, of every culture, of every race comes down to one couple, one couple. That's where we all came from, which means ultimately there can only be one race. Now, this is the unity part. This is the unity part. I remember the first time that really landed on me, and, and powerfully so. I was reading a children's storybook, and you know, these storybooks to your children are not really just for children, rarely. This is Ruth Graham Bell, daughter of Billy Graham, Ruth Graham Bell's One Stormy Night. If you don't have it, get it. Um, it's a beautifully done, told and illustrated retelling of the entire biblical storyline from the very beginning to the very end. Again, the, the, written beautifully and illustrated beautifully, and it was the illust- one particular illustration, I can still see it, that just undid me on this point because it, it was this picture of Adam and Eve. And in them, you could see all the races right there, red, yellow, black, and white. In these, and they were the most beautiful people I've ever seen. In this children's storybook, And it helped me to really grapple with this reality. That as you look back to the beginning of the beginnings, we see this unity, this beautiful, beautiful unity that ultimately makes us one. I said Zion is typified by unity but also diversity, and that's true too. And here you don't so much look to the very beginning but you look to, towards the very end. You don't just look to the deep, deep past, but the deep, deep future. And that was read from earlier, alluded to earlier in Revelation. And you see that all through the book of Revelation, as we see this beautiful assembly, these celebratory assemblies standing there before the throne of God. And what are they celebrating? Well, amidst other things, part of the celebration is it's reciprocal. The people before the Lord celebrating Him, but you also get the sense of the Lord celebrating them. And all the unique gifts and diversities of all these tribes and cultures and races and kingdoms that are standing there before Him and praising His name, 
gloriously included and so gladly received into His presence. And so there we see not just the the beautiful unity, but the beautiful diversity there at the same time. See, my, my friends, it's Zion is not a flat monochrome. It is a rich, multi-textured, multi-cultured, multi-faceted, beautiful, harmonious congregation assembled before the throne. So it's, it's both. It's not one, it's not the other. It's both. Somehow, as only God could do it, the unity and the diversity. Now, how, do we, how can that be? Because that's exactly who He is. One God and three persons, blessed Trinity. He is the God of unity and diversity. This is how He does it. This is how He likes it. Can you go outside this afternoon and not be struck everywhere you look, just in the natural world, and not be struck and in, in, in how it's abundant evidence and testimony, if we will have eyes to see everywhere we look, of how He is a God who delights in unity and diversity. Everywhere we turn, everywhere we turn, this is how He likes it. This is what He's done, and this is what He's doing. And so again, in response to the pandemic of racism, The Lord is promising this new city, a city of unity and diversity at the same gloriously, beautifully, wondrously, mysteriously so at the same time. But that then takes us to the third point. We've looked at something as to how He feels, what He has in mind for this city, and who is there. And now we get to this third thing, and that is how any of us get to be there how any of us get to be there. And here we move from the city of God to the people of God to the grace of God. It's the only answer as to how any of us are there. You get a hint of that in verse 7. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. This is the response to what has been said here in the song as everyone is joining in. You get the sense of this awestruck, deep refreshment and reflection and reliance upon the God of Zion, recognizing two things, that anyone who's there is there and has nothing to do with their own doing. It has nothing at all to do with their own doing. Now, I listed out for you the nations a minute ago. Let's go back to that because that was kind of a surfacey description that we did. Let's talk a little bit more about who these nations are that are included there. And this is why this would have been so shocking to the first singers of this song. Rahab was another name for a sea monster horribly destructive, and yes, it was a nickname for Egypt, a superpower, yes, to the south, just as Babylon was out to the east, not just two superpowers, but two oppressors, conquerors of God's people. Oh, yes, Philistia was a sea power, a coastal culture down to the southwest, a perennial thorn in Israel's side. 
retire up to the northwest, an affluent culture, continually, in another way, a thorn in Israel's side because of how constantly they were such a temptation and a draw to another way of living, a lie, outside of living in response to the grace of the true and living God. And Cush, Cush, as I said, was south-south of Egypt, and again, in the known world, this was the furthest remote and regarded to be the most spiritually illiterate of all peoples of the day. Do you see what they have in common? Do you see what these peoples have this, these peoples have in common? Not a one has a claim or a right to be there. Our being included amidst Zion has nothing to do with our own doing. It never has and it never will. That's the point. It has nothing to do with our own doing and everything and solely to do with the Lord's doing. Everything and solely to do with His doing. Let's look again at verse 1. On the holy mount stands the city He founded. Do you see? This is all His idea. This is all His creation, His initiative. That's the only reason there's a city at all. You go read a little bit further, you read into verse 6. The Lord records as He registers the people, this one was born there. The only way that any of us could find our names listed in the record or the register is because He has done it. Because He has done it. That's our sole security. And if we understand it rightly, should be our sole sense and deepest sense of identity. What He has done for us in His grace. Now, that, the, you get the sense of the shock value of that in the threefold repetition. I don't know if you caught that. But how many times the psalmist has here in this short little psalm, and when it's a short psalm and you see the same thing three times... You might want to pay attention. This one was born in her. This one was born in her. This one was born in her. The idea being, can you believe who's there? Can you believe they are here? He is here. She is here. We are here. That's the shock value of the grace that's being spoken of here. Now, Moving in a bit more directly into the question, the issue, the struggle, the pandemic, the scourge of racism, let's talk about how the grace of God impacts that. If indeed this is our security and if indeed this is our identity, how does this impact that? The gospel of grace is our sole hope in the struggle with race. gospel of grace, and I'm not exaggerating, I'm simply giving you what's here. The gospel of grace is our sole hope in our struggle with race. You're going to need to hang on with me for this argument. It's a little long. Stay with me. I want to give you a diagnosis of the pandemic 
a racism and the cure. In view of the diagnosis, what is the soul cure? So here's the diagnosis. Here's the way this works. Every single one of us, every single human being has been made in the image and the likeness of the true and living God made to worship, made to worship, okay, made to rely upon, put our trust in something, someone outside of ourselves. We're going to turn to that something, rely upon that something, find our significance and hope and meaning and trust in whoever or whatever that is. That becomes our security, that becomes our identity, it becomes the most important shaping factor of our lives. Any anthropologist will tell you, does not have to be a Christian, will tell you essentially every one of us is a worshiper. It's not a matter of if, it's what, okay? And if it's not the Creator, then it has to be what? What's left? Something in the creation. If it's not the Creator, it has to be something in the creation. Now, that can be our own selfish personal pursuits, and there's a gazillion possibilities there. And most all of them in this world, good, just gone too far. It can also be the group of which we identify ourselves with, the culture from which we come, our ethnicity, our race. It is possible to worship that. It is possible for that to be our sense of security, for that to be our sense of identity, for that to be the defining characteristic, the the, the thing that we orbit around. Okay, it's possible. And to the extent that that is the case, which, by the way, is true of everybody in some degree, to some degree, it is true of everyone finding your identity in your ethnicity and your race, to the degree to, that that is true, to the degree that that is taking up the space within the vacuum of your heart, it will become the most important thing to you, the shaping influence of your life. You will be increasingly unable to identify and understand people who are different from you. You will separate, segregate, divide. You will boast, if not externally, at least internally, in terms of your skin. And you will disdain and look down upon, denigrate those with whom are different from you. Do you see, this? racism has deep, deep, deep spiritual roots. And it gets worse. You say, how so? Because eventually in time, in every society, in every culture, one group gets power over another. Okay? And one group ends up with crass injustices committed against it. It's true of every society, ever since Genesis 3, ever since the fall. I'm going to be very careful but very direct in what I'm about to say. Racism is not a white issue. It is not a black issue. It is a fallen sinner issue. 
which means it's an everyone issue. Do you hear me? I'm just, we're trying to relay to you what's here. In the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, it's there in your quotes and notes, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Every human heart. My friends, this is why just in recent decades, just in relatively recent history, we have seen the carnage and genocides that we have in places like South Sudan, Rwanda, and the Balkans. You see immediately it's not a black thing, a white thing, it's a fallen sinner thing, a post-Genesis 3 thing. The roots of this are incredibly deep because it's a spiritual problem. What's the solution? What then can be the cure if that, in fact, is in any way close to the diagnosis? We've turned our backs from our Creator. What's the solution? Repent. To turn from our self-righteousness to Christ's righteousness. To turn to the grace of God held forth to us in the finished work of Jesus. That is the only hope that we have. It's the sole hope that we have. It's the only medicine for that disease. It's the only cure for this scourge. And it is most emphatically not ignoring it and pretending it's not there or shaming people and attacking them. It is only in the gospel. In response to the pandemic of racism, the Lord is promising this new city. And His grace is our only hope of being a part of that city. No few are rightly saying, crying out right now, what happened in Minneapolis was horribly wrong. We're hearing that across the political spectrum, reverberating across this globe, and spoken and felt, expressed in so many ways. It ought not to be this way. And that's absolutely right. To say that is absolutely right. 
I just want to move in on this, if I may, if you'll bear with me. You are absolutely right to call out that which is wrong. And indeed, you are made to do so, even if you don't know it. You are absolutely right to call out that which is wrong. My only question is, do you know why you're right? Do you know why you're right in calling out that which is wrong? Do you know, do you know why? We need to come to grips with that question and the answer to that. Do we know why we are right to call out that which is wrong? And in fact, we are right to say this is wrong. Do we know why? We're right because the Word of God tells us so. Piercing through all the fog of opinion polls and studies, all the subjective posturing and positions that people can take, getting us to something hard and fast and objective and true and lasting and eternal, the Word of God. That's how you can know that you're right in calling out that which is wrong. And, and indeed, so I cannot say more emphatically, we desperately need this Word. We desperately need this Word. Not just, though, to tell us that which is wrong. But again, as I said a moment ago, because it's the grace of God that's so desperately needed in addressing this and any other issue, frankly. It is the gospel that is the only medicine. The gospel is the, the only bomb. The gospel, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, our security and identity being that is the only thing that will give any of us a monochrome, a microscopic particle enough to be humble enough to listen to one another. Only the gospel will do that. Only the gospel will enable us to listen, to be humble, to compel us to repent and confess and embolden and empower us as we forgive and embrace. Is that not what we need? Is that not what we need? Well, what's going to fuel that? There's only one thing. The grace of God extended to us in the finished work of Jesus, taken to heart, embraced, and lived out in even the hardest things. Again, one more time. In response to this pandemic of racism, the Lord is promising a new city. A new city. Can we pray? Oh, Lord, have mercy. God of Zion, have mercy. Where we have been indifferent and apathetic, have mercy.
where we have been complacent and quiet, have mercy. Where we have been proud and arrogant, have mercy. Where we have been presumptuous and smug, have mercy. Heal our land. Calm the unrest. Or would you guide our leaders beginning at the local levels and moving out from there? Would you make us, this nation, a people typified by justice and mercy and humility? Revive your church. We talk a lot about being safe, secure in your presence by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We talk a lot. Help us to believe it, to breathe it in deeply, and then breathe it out in how we live. You have made us to be a city on a hill. Oh, would you help us to be what you've called us to be? We pray in your name. Amen.